and we'll go ahead and read through. Let's see how far do we want to go. Not very far, obviously, but let's go ahead and read through the first seven verses. Seven, one through seven. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week when we began our study of this epistle, we noticed that this is one of the most significant books in the entire Bible. Some would say it's the greatest book in the Bible, and certainly it has been one of the most influential books in Western history, this great epistle to the Romans. I pointed out that nearly every great revival in the history of the church over the course of 2,000 years has in one way or another been tied to this particular epistle. So that's really quite extraordinary when you think about it. We also talked about the Apostle Paul himself, the author of this book. We talked about Paul's background in Judaism. We said that he probably had a very fine classical or secular education. That's something worth mentioning. Sometimes Christians have a tendency to think that a secular education is a dangerous thing. Um, but when I think about those people who were used most by God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the two people that spring to mind, one would be Moses, of course, and the other would be Paul. And both of those people had a very fine, what we would call, secular education. Uh, Moses, we're told, had been raised in the court of Pharaoh. Uh, that would have been a very secular education. And Paul, of course, having been raised in Tarsus, which was this great university center of the ancient world, would have had a very fine secular education as well. One of the things we have to remember as Christians, particularly as Christian parents and godparents, is that our job is not to raise our little children to keep them safe and protected from the world. Our job is to raise them up to be ambassadors for Christ in the world. Now, there is a point where we have to protect them, yes, but they are called to be in the world. If you think about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John's Gospel, it's the only prayer, incidentally, that Jesus ever prayed personally that we have actually recorded in Scripture. Did you know that? Well, we call the Lord's Prayer not actually the Lord's Prayer. It was a model that the Lord gave for His disciples to pray. But Jesus Himself never prayed that. He would never have said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, because He'd never trespassed. It was a model for them to pray. The only prayer that we have is the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John's Gospel, in which He prays for His disciples, and one of the things that He asks for is that they not be taken out of the world, but that they be protected while they are in the world from the evil one. You'll also recall that Jesus' last words to his disciples prior to his ascension were these, Go ye into the world, into all the world, and preach the gospel. So as Christians, we are called to be in the world, not necessarily of the world. Our lives are not to be characterized by the world, but we are certainly called to be in the world 
That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are called to be salt and light. Well, you can't be salt and light if you're not in the world. And so a secular education can be helpful. And these people certainly have a secular education. Now, that's not to say that they didn't also have a very fine religious education as well. Paul was certainly well-grounded, and one might say that his religious education, where he was trained as a Pharisee under Jerusalem, under Gamaliel, that probably overshadowed everything else. But the point is, Paul was a well-rounded and educated man. And that was going to equip him to be an effective witness in that Greco-Roman culture in which he would live most of his latter days. So we talked about Paul, we talked about this epistle and its significance. Now we're going to turn to the theme of this epistle today. And there is a sense in which the most important word linguistically in this introduction is that whole phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word gospel is probably, linguistically at least, the most important word in the opening. Now somebody might say, well, what about Jesus Christ? Certainly that's got to be more important. I say that the word gospel is the most important word here in the introduction because this is the theme of the book. This is what Romans is all about. It is about the gospel, the good news. I think most of you know that that's what the word gospel means. It's taken from the Greek evangelion. It's from a word from which we get evangelist. And that's what it means. It means good news, glad tidings. When the angels, for example, appeared to the shepherds, on that Christmas Eve, to announce the Lord's birth, they said, we bring you glad tidings, good news. The word that they use there is actually gospel, evangelion. So the Christian message is fundamentally a message of good news, and that's what this epistle is going to be about, the good news that is centered specifically on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want us to focus on today as we continue our study of Romans, this very important theme. This is the thesis of the entire book, the gospel of God centered on Jesus Christ. Now look at how Paul describes the gospel here. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, we talked about what an apostle is, set apart, set apart for the gospel of God. That's the important thing to understand, that this is God's gospel. This is good news, but it's not man's good news. It's God's good news. This is God's idea. Most religions in the world, if you think about it, are aimed at bringing people into a right relationship with God, but it's all done by human effort. Every religion in the world is meant to bring you to a place where you're in a right relationship with God so that you can receive all of the benefits of that right relationship. But all of those religions are really designed to be human motivated. It's, it's based upon human effort. It's what we have to do in order to get into a right relationship with God. Now, if you think about it, that is not good news. If you have to do it, and you never know how good you have to be in order to do it, that is not good news. That is a burden. That is something that will weigh you down. But what Paul says right here at the beginning is that this good news is God's good news. This business of bringing us into a relationship with God is something that God does. It's not something that we do. And that's why it's good news. 
So he says, we are, he has been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Whose son? God's son. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to understand. This good news of God bringing people into relationship with himself is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, who is his son. So Jesus Christ, Paul is declaring here, to be the son of God. But then he goes on to say this, and this would have been very important for his Jewish audience, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And when he designates that this is a gospel from God, centered on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that would have been very, very important for the Gentile audience. But when he talks about being descended from David, that would have been very important to the Jewish audience. And incidentally, and we'll get to this when we talk a little bit more about the recipients of this letter, the Roman church, what's interesting is that the church that Paul was writing to, the church in Rome, was a mixed congregation. In fact, it was probably the most mixed of all of the congregations to whom Paul would write. You know that he founded many churches over the course of his missionary journeys, but most of those churches were Gentile churches. Paul was collecting the Jerusalem fund from the Gentile churches to take it and give it to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But what is interesting is that the church in Rome was a mixture. It had Jews and it had Gentiles in it. So when Paul speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when he speaks of Jesus Christ being one, the Son of God, and number two, descended from David, that is something that would have been very significant for everybody in that congregation. And here's why. The first thing is that Paul is saying that this is a gospel about Jesus Christ, and it has been long promised. A few years ago, I preached a sermon on Christmas Eve and I described it as God's great rescue mission. That the story of Christmas is just that. It is God's great rescue mission. It is God sending a Savior into the world. Isn't that what the angels said to the shepherds? We bring you glad tidings of great joy which shall be unto all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. Someone who has come to save you, to rescue you. But the point I wanted you to understand in that particular sermon, and perhaps you can go back and listen to it if you're so inclined, but one of the things that I pointed out was that this was a well-planned, well-executed rescue. It was well-executed because God pulled it off. Jesus Christ did come into this world. He mounted the arms of the cross. He paid the price for our sins, and on the third day he was vindicated when God raised him from the dead. It was well-executed, but it was also well-planned. It had been planned from time immemorial. I love the way that Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as the lamb who was slain when? Not in the year 33 AD, but before the foundations of the world, which tells us that even before you and I were created, even before man was a twinkle in God's eye, and even before we had fallen in the garden, and even before we had done all of the wretched things down through the centuries, God knew even before creating us, 
what we were going to do, and he set in motion the plans by which he would redeem us. Now, if you think about it, that's rather extraordinary. Most of us, if we knew we were going to create creatures that were going to rebel and defile the creation, we would probably say, oh, okay, well, let's not go down that route. We'll do another thing. But that's not the way God operated. Even before we had sinned, God put in motion the means by which we were going to be saved. Now, you think, who but God could do something like that? But that's what Paul is talking about here. He says he is God's son, he has come to rescue us, and he is the one who has been long promised. He is the descendant of David. The Jews knew that a Savior was going to come, but most Jews believed that when that Savior came, he was going to be some sort of political or military messiah. When they thought of salvation, they thought of the salvation of the nation. They remembered those glory days of David and Solomon when Israel was great among the princes of the world. And they believed that when the Savior came, that's what he was going to do. He's going to drive out the Romans and reestablish the Davidic dynasty, and the Jews were going to be great among the nations of the earth again. But God's plan was much grander than that. It was not just to save a nation, it was to save the world. But it was the same plan that had been promised to the Jews centuries before. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn back, if you will, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 22. Oh, excuse me. No, not that. Jeremiah 23. We'll get to 22 in just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 23. This is what the prophet writes. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Now that theme of righteousness is something that Paul is going to bring back to the fore here in this first chapter of Romans. But what he wants us to understand is that this promise that had been made to Jeremiah centuries before Jesus was ever born is now being fulfilled and has been fulfilled, Paul says, in God's Son. So he wants us to understand that the Savior who is coming is Jesus Christ. He is God's Son, but he is also the one who had been promised to the prophets and through the prophets centuries before. Now this is important for the Jews, of course, that the Savior be descended from David. And we talked about this, those of you who are in the study on Matthew. We talked about the fact that Matthew and Luke, those two Gospels, each have genealogies. Each of the Gospels begins in a unique way. I think you know that. John's Gospel begins in time, in the mists of time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how John's Gospel begins. Mark's Gospel begins about 30 years into Jesus' life. It begins with Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. It doesn't say anything about the birth in Bethlehem. It doesn't say anything about the coming of the Magi. 
It simply starts with Jesus' public ministry by his baptism by John in the Jordan River. Now, that's not because Mark is oblivious to the story of Jesus' birth. It's because as far as he is concerned, all of that is prelude to where the rubber really hits the road, and that's when Jesus begins his public ministry of preaching and teaching. So John begins way back in time immemorial. Mark begins 33 years or 30 years into Jesus' life. Matthew and Luke begin where? At the story of Jesus' birth, but with some family history. With some family history. Talks about the Lord's kin. But we notice that Matthew and Luke, when we looked at Matthew, Matthew and Luke give us two different genealogies. And that's what's so confusing. Is there a conflict there? I mean, why would Matthew give us one line of descent and Luke would give us another line of descent? And when we look at it closely, what we realize is that while they are different, they are not contradictory. Matthew is giving us one line of descent, and that comes through Joseph. Luke gives us another line of descent that comes through Mary. But here's what's significant. And you're going to have to hang in there with me. Some of you remember a little bit of this, but it's very important to Paul's whole argument about Jesus being the Son of God, but also the Son of David. That is to say, fully divine, but fully human, but also the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. So how does this work? Whoever the Savior was to come and save Israel, and thereby save the world, he had to be at least in the eyes of the Jews, the descendant of David. Now, that didn't necessarily mean that he was going to be divine. They knew he'd be a divine instrument. The whole idea of Jesus' divinity, that would be something that would blow their minds. But they knew that he had to be a descendant of David. Jesus would not have been accepted by the Jews if he had not been a descendant of David because of prophecies like that one I just read to you from Jeremiah chapter 23. So here's what happens. Matthew gives us this whole lineage. When David died, King David, the great king, who was a precursor of the one who was to come, when King David died, he had two sons. The elder son was a man by the name of Nathan. Now, normally, Nathan would have ascended the throne. But what happens is that he is bypassed, and Solomon ascends the throne. Solomon is another son, the son by Bathsheba, incidentally. So what you have is the line then in Matthew's gospel, he traces the lineage of Jesus from King David down through Solomon the whole way down until he gets to Joseph. Joseph was a descendant of King David. Luke traces the lineage of Jesus from David down through Nathan, eventually to Mary, who was also a descendant of David. Now here's what's significant. Mary was a virgin. We say this every Sunday in the Creed. That Jesus became incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother. 
Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. It was his adopted father. Now, someone might say, well, okay, doesn't make a difference because Jesus is descended through Mary back to David. But there is a problem, and here is the problem. Nathan never sat on the throne of David. He was part of the royal family, but he was not a sitting king. Are you with me? This is a little confusing. Let me try to put it to you in, in modern terms. It's a little bit like um, when King Edward VIII of England abdicated the throne. When he died, well, when, when his father died, who was King George V, when King George V died, the eldest son automatically ascended the throne. That was the Prince of Wales who became Edward VIII. Edward VIII, you'll recall, married a divorced woman, an American, Wallace Simpson. And according to the Church of England, he could not then sit on the throne. And so he was forced to abdicate. Now, of course, the law has been changed for Prince Charles. But in those days, this is the way it was. He had to abdicate the throne. When he abdicated the throne, what happened? His younger brother, who was the Duke of York, became King George VI. He would eventually have two daughters, one of whom was Elizabeth II, who is the reigning monarch. What would have happened if Edward VIII had had a, a child? If he had had a child and he had, his father had abdicated the throne, that child could be a claimant to the throne of England. He would be a pretender to the throne is what we would call it. He never actually sat on the throne, but he had a claim to the throne. Well, that's what we have here with Nathan. Nathan was a claimant to the throne of David, but he never actually sat on the throne of David. In the case of Matthew, he's telling us that Joseph was a descendant of David, but through Solomon, who actually sat on the throne. It was the descendants of Solomon who sat on the throne. But here's where it really gets tricky. If it isn't, it's already tricky? Well, it's just going to get trickier. So just kind of hang in there with me. Here's where it gets really tricky. It gets tricky because as the line goes down through Solomon on its way to Joseph, on its way to Jesus, there is a king by the name of Jehoiakim or Jeconias, he's sometimes called, who is so evil, so wicked that a curse is pronounced upon him. And that curse is found in Jeremiah chapter 22. So turn there for just a moment. I know this is confusing, and it's not going to become any clearer, I'm afraid, but maybe it will. So Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord. Well, actually start, it's better probably to start back a little further back, back to verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, Though Kenoia, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear it off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. 
But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man Kaniah, or Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, as he's sometimes called, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in all his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So, David dies, he has two sons. He passes the throne on to his son Solomon. That is the line of the reigning monarchs. That line will eventually go the whole way down to Joseph. But in the midst of that transference, there is a king who is so wicked, so evil in God's eyes, that God declares a curse on him and says, no more shall any of his descendants sit anymore on the throne of David. In other words, in God's eyes, whoever is descended from that line is no longer legitimate. Now, there's this other son, Nathan. Nathan never sits on the throne. None of his descendants sit on the throne. They are descendants of David, but none of them actually sit as reigning monarchs on the throne. That line goes down without a curse the whole way to Mary. Now here's the problem for Jews. They're waiting for a Messiah to come. Whoever the Messiah is, he must be the undisputed. Undisputed, that's critical. Undisputed descendant of David. But how can that be? There were lots of descendants from David through the line of Nathan. But they would be disputed by those on the other side who would say they never sat on the throne of David. They were members of the royal household. They have a claim to the throne, but they never actually sat on the throne. But there are others who are descended through the line of Solomon, people like Joseph, who would say, yes, we sat on the throne of David, but the other side might say, yes, but your line was cursed. And in God's eyes, you are no longer legitimate. So whoever is going to be the savior of the world, whoever's going to save Israel, has to be an undisputed descendant of David. How can that be? Here's how it happens. All right? And this is why I say, who but God could think of this? Here's how God fixes the problem. Jesus is born of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother. Mary is a virgin. So coursing through Jesus' veins is the blood of David. But when Mary marries Joseph, Joseph, at first, thinks she's been unfaithful. You know the story. He wanted to divorce her quietly, but the Holy Spirit came, and the person of an angel spoke to him and said, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. The child that is conceived in her is the child of God, of the Holy Ghost. And so what Joseph does, being a righteous man, is he takes Mary home to be his wife, and he adopts the child that is born as his own. 
Now, according to Jewish law, when you adopt a child, what you do is you pass on all of the rights and the privileges that are yours to the adopted child. So what you have in Jesus is a true descendant of David from a line that was not cursed. But because he is the adopted son of Joseph, all of the honors and the privileges of the reigning line are passed on to Jesus. Which means that if Jesus is not the Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world, there never can be one. Because of the virgin birth or the virginal conception, Jesus Christ is the only one who can ultimately claim to be the undisputed heir of David. With all the rights and the honors of Joseph's line, but without the curse having come through Mary. Now are you with me on that? Kind of, a little bit. Well, it's a bit of a mystery. But you see how significant that is. That's what Paul is talking about here in Romans. He's saying that the one who has come is the Son of God, but he's also the descendant of David, the undisputed claimant to the throne of David. With all of the rights and the honors and privileges that are accorded to him by his adopted father, but without the curse because he is the descendant of David through the line of Mary, back to Nathan, back to David. No, but there'll be a test at the end of all of this. <laughs> okay, so let me try to make this as clear as I can. One last time. So I'm watching your heads explode right here in front of me. So here's the point. David, whoever the Savior is, has to be a descendant of David. David has two sons. The one who reigns is Solomon. And all of Solomon's descendants reign. Joseph, let's say the line is exhausted with Joseph. Joseph is a descendant of David, but through Solomon. But one of the kings in Solomon's line, this man, Jehoiakim, or Jeconias, is so evil that he's cursed, and all of his descendants are declared to be illegitimate. You've got this other son, Nathan. His line is not cursed, but they never sat on the throne. They were members of the royal family, but they never sat on the throne. They never sat on the throne because David passed the line on to Solomon. So he never sat on the throne, but they were descendants of David. That line gets exhausted with Mary. Mary gives birth to Jesus. Jesus has to be from the line of David. But he has to be the undisputed claimant to David's throne. The only way for that to happen is that if both lines can say yes. Well, certainly, Solomon's line can say yes. Why? Because Joseph, having adopted Jesus, passes on all the rights and privileges to his adopted son. The right to the throne. But the other line would claim Jesus as well. Why? because he actually was born of Mary, who was a descendant of David through the line of Nathan. 
which means that Jesus is the only one ultimately who can be the savior of the Jewish people. Now I say, who but God could think of that? And this is one of the reasons why the virgin birth, or the virginal conception is the proper way to put that, that is the reason why that is not one of those minor little doctrines that we can just sort of say is tacked on to the outside of Christianity. It's not all that important. It is absolutely important. Now, some of you will point out, well, virgin in the Old Testament simply meant a young woman of marrying age. But it is clear, it is quite clear in the Gospels, that's not what they are talking about. They're talking about a woman who had never known a man conceiving a child by the power of the Holy Ghost and producing he who was the Savior of the world, the Savior of the Jews and the Redeemer of mankind. And that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans. Now, if you think about it, that's quite extraordinary. Yes, Garden. He was. I, I wish I had a graph, but I can't do a graph. So, all right. I, need, I feel like I need to get a bunch of people up here on this room. I'm David, all right? Okay, so here's David. I've got two sons. All right? Come on up here, Rachel. <laughs> Ann Hundley, come up here, <laughs> if you would, please. Okay. Here I am, the patriarch. Don't you forget it. So here I am. I'm David. Got it. This is Solomon. This is Nathan. Well... It, it, that is irrelevant when all is said and done because what happens is one reigns. David passes the throne on to this son right here. Okay. This is still my son. This is still my child. And this son is going to produce heirs. I'm going to have grandchildren through this son. All the way down to a grandchild, great, 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 great grandchild, Mary, on this line. This son is going to produce a whole line as well. It's going to go the whole way down to Joseph. I'm going to tell you. Jehoiakim is one of this son's grandchildren. That's correct. One of Solomon's descendants. And he's the one that is pronounced cursed. But the problem was, it was this line that sat on the throne. This line never sat on the throne. You got it now? All right, thank you very much. God bless you, and you're in my will, because that's how it is. Yes. Do Jewish scholars recognize this? Well, it's, it's, it is a powerful tool to use particularly with Jews who take this sort of thing seriously. What, what they'll get hung up on is, I, I think what they would find is that the argument is powerful and provocative. I think where they would get hung up on is the whole virgin birth part. And that's why as Christians we don't start with the virgin birth, we start with the what? The resurrection. Because the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And this is part of that argument. 
So are you with me? I know that's very complex, but do you see how important it is? Because now, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, going back to Romans chapter 1 now, which is what we left about 45 minutes ago or whatever it was. He's saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, this is God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, Jeremiah, for example, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, God's son, who was what? Descended from David. So the one who is the Savior is the undisputed child of David, and yet he is also the Son of God. This is Paul's way of saying that the one who is the Savior is the unique God-man. The unique God-man. Descended from David according to the flesh, but, and he goes on to say, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit by His holiness, or of holiness, by His what? His resurrection from the dead. So we know that he is a descendant of David by the flesh, but he's also the Son of God, and we know that how. We know he's the Son of God because God has proven it by raising him from the dead. So right here, you can see how much theology, how much history is packed right here into these opening verses of Romans. This is what Paul is saying. This whole book is good news. It's glad tidings. It's God's good news. It's not a human religion in which we have to work at it in order to get into God's good graces. God has done this. This is God's good news. It is centered on the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of David, but who is also, by His resurrection, proven to be the Son of God, the unique God-man. Now That's what Paul is saying right there at the beginning. Now, this divinity of Christ is central to our understanding of Jesus Christ. He is not just a human being. He is the Son of God. And that becomes particularly clear when you look at Jesus' own life and ministry. The things that He did, the things that He claimed, these were things that only God could do, only God could claim. He claims to be divine, for example. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn back for just a moment, two books, to John, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that word Christ means anointed one. That's not Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. It is his title. He is the anointed one. Christ is another word for Messiah. So they know that Jesus is a worker of tremendous deeds. He can open the eyes of the blind. He can make the lame walk. He can cleanse lepers. 
they're wondering who he is. And yet he makes these extraordinary claims that make, him feel, make them feel very uncomfortable. And so on this particular occasion, they come up to him, and I love the way they put it. They said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the Savior, if you are the Messiah, well, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and know them, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand I, here it is, this is the critical verse, I and the Father are one. Now that is a direct claim by Jesus to be what? One with the Father. Now you understand, Jews didn't even speak the name of God, it was so holy. Let alone claim to be one with God? That was blasphemy. And that becomes clear in the very next verse. Look at what the Jews did when they heard us. Are you going to keep us in suspense? I've told you who I am. My works declare who I am. I and the Father are one. And the minute they hear that, what? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Because that was a violation of the law. To claim to be God, it was punishable by death. So Jesus clearly claimed to be divine. He also claimed to do something that only God has the power to do, to forgive sins. Look at Mark chapter 2. This is a familiar story. And when he returned to Capernaum after several days, it was reported that he was at home, and many gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Would have been a thatched roof of some sort. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I suspect that for the paralytic, that was a downer. Because that's not what he was hoping for, let's be honest. I mean, this had been a harrowing journey for him. Up to the top of the roof, remove the roof, lower down in the presence of Jesus and that crowd. And Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, thanks very much, but what I was really hoping for was a new set of legs. But that's what Jesus says. But look at the response of the crowd, particularly the Jewish religious leaders. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming, for who can forgive sins but God alone? So they recognized that only God could claim to forgive sins. If Jesus was claiming to forgive sins, Jesus was claiming to be what? God. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So there you have Jesus claiming to be one with the Father. Here is Jesus claiming to have the authority to forgive sins, which only God has the authority to do. And then you have that extraordinary passage in John chapter 14. We read it often at funerals where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, what? But by me or except through me. That is an extraordinary claim. Jesus isn't claiming to be a way, a truth, a life, He's saying, look, I'm the only way. Every other way is a dead end. I am the truth. None of this business about speak your truth. I am the truth. And I am the life. And furthermore, I am the only way to God the Father. You know, people always get upset about that. They say, oh, I just can't accept that part about Christianity, that Jesus is the only way. Well, let's look at it from God's perspective for just a moment. Why does there have to be any way? God doesn't have to provide any way for anybody to be saved. If you were drowning out on the lake and somebody threw you a stick to hold on to, would you actually say, no thanks, I would prefer something else? You'll take hold of whatever is offered you, won't you? That's God's perspective. He has provided a way by which men and women can be saved, any man, any woman, Why would anyone refuse the means by which God has appointed? That's what Jesus is saying. I am the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to the Father. Whoever will may come to me. Now, those are extraordinary claims, folks. C.S. Lewis got it right. He said, if you're honest and you really look at Jesus, you are faced with a trilemma. He is one of three things. He is either the Lord of glory, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. If there is somebody out there that is perfectly sane, but he claims to be God, he claims to have the power to forgive your sins, he has the power to save you, and this man is not out of his mind, then he is a what? He's either telling the truth, or he's a liar. Or... If he's claiming to do these things, and he's not lying, he really believes that he has the power to do this, then he's probably a what? A lunatic. The only other option that's open to you, Lewis said, is that he actually is who he claims to be. And that's what Paul is saying here when he says, and God has proven that this is his son by vindicating him, by raising him from the dead. So that is what this first part of Romans is really all about. The theme of this epistle is gospel, good news, glad tidings. It's God's good news to humanity is centered on the person of his son, the divine son of God, Jesus Christ, who has the power to forgive sins, who is one with the Father, who is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father, 
and who is the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah of Israel promised centuries before. And Paul says, that's what this book is all about. Now that's just in those few verses. But you begin to see how important the epistle of the Romans is, how foundational it really is. Now we could go on and talk about that whole title of Lord. Because he is Jesus, he is the Christ, but Paul says he is also Kyrios, he is also the Lord. But I have blown your mind here, I know, in about 50 minutes, so I'm just going to take a time out here and answer any questions you may have or concerns that you may have. Bob. That is the first time that we have in the Gospels, yes, where that is, we, it is profound. There's no question about that. His, his question is, that, that particular occasion in Mark, is that the first time where we see Jesus associating his healing power and the forgiveness of sins? Yes, and of course, I'm sure that it happened on other occasions, but the Gospel writers were very selective in what they chose in terms of their material. And they chose that particular occasion, really not so much to show that Jesus had the power to remit sins, so much as to prove Jesus' divinity, his identity, reveal who he is. Now, of course, all of this is still in question. That's why Paul comes back to the resurrection. All of this is in question, Paul would say, until Jesus is vindicated. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to think about the disciples themselves. They even, having been with Jesus for three years, were still doubtful, still questioning in their minds. I mean, think about those disciples after Good Friday. After Jesus' body is taken down from the cross and laid in the tomb, just, just think for a moment about the disciples. Where are they? Now, they had been told, hadn't they, over the course of the previous three years, that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem, he had to suffer at the hands of his own people, betrayed into the hands of his enemies, he had to be crucified, but on the third day he would rise again. Over and over and over again, Jesus had said that. He said it at Caesarea Philippi when Peter confessed him as the Lord. But, having gone to Jerusalem, having been betrayed by his own people into the hands of his enemies, having been crucified... What do you think they should have been doing on Holy Saturday? Getting ready for his return. But they weren't. They weren't. Their lives would not be changed until what? The resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. That's the keystone of our faith. That's the keystone of the Christian faith. If you pull out the resurrection, everything else falls apart. Every claim that Jesus made falls apart and wreck and ruin. The resurrection is the keystone of the faith. And that's why Paul mentions it right here. Yes, Paul is claiming that Jesus is the son of David. Yes, he is claiming that Jesus is the son of God. Yes, he is claiming Jesus has the power to remit sins. 
Yes, he is claiming Jesus is the central figure in God's great good news, the plan of salvation, but all of that, he says, depends on the resurrection. So it's right there at the beginning, who by the spirit of holiness was declared to be. Now that doesn't mean made at that point, it simply means vindicated. It becomes apparent at that point that Jesus is who he is because he was raised from the dead. Catherine. How much did Paul know about these stories? It's hard to say. Um, what we do know about Paul is that after his conversion, he disappeared for a few years. Um, he went off, and obviously this was earth-shattering to him. Remember what it was like for Paul on the road to Damascus. He thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. All of a sudden he discovers that the God that he thought he was serving, he was actually persecuting. That was eye-opening to him. He disappeared for a time, but then we're told he went and he spent time with the apostles, presumably with Peter and, so, and with the others. And I suspect he knew a lot of this. How much he knew about all of this, it's hard to say. But he certainly spent a considerable amount of time with the other apostles, so I suspect he knew a lot of this. Oh, Luke? I don't know. I, I would presume that he did. I would presume that he did. I think for many of us, and, and maybe this is true in your own life, the question, the question for the live stream is, um, isn't it odd that nobody really paid closer attention to what the shepherds had to say and so forth? And of course, you are correct. The shepherds were very far down on the pecking order. Uh, in first century Jewish society, shepherds were not even permitted to give testimony in a court of law because their testimony was considered to be unreliable. So that would have been one reason why they would have been discounted right off the bat. Women were not permitted to give testimony in a court of law either. That's significant when it comes to the resurrection because who were the eyewitnesses? They were women. So that may be part of it. I think the other part of it is, is that for many people, there are events that pass you by that you don't remember the significance or recognize the significance of them until after the fact. All of a sudden, oh, do you remember now? I think that was certainly the case with the disciples. Jesus said many things that sort of, sort of went in one ear and out the other until the resurrection, and then all of a sudden, well, wait a minute. That changes everything. Do you remember what he said? I wonder if that's what that really meant. And I suspect that's probably the way it was with the shepherd. What we know about Mary is that when she received the word from the angels, when the shepherds came, the scripture says she treasured these things and pondered them in her own heart. In other words, I think Mary, having a particular insight given to her by God, yes, recognized the significance of these things in a way that other people did not. So, and perhaps looking back, people say, oh, 
Remember those shepherds that came. Remember what they said, what they did, what they experienced. If, in fact, she really understood what that meant. Well, after the fact. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to understand the gospel was unfolding. But, yes, I think probably in later years, perhaps as, you know, as Jesus' body was being taken down from the cross, she may have remembered back to the presentation in the temple and those words spoken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. John. <laughs> He'd have done a better job. Well, what I've just shared with you has been known by biblical scholars for a very long time. Uh, the person who probably did the best job of explaining this, really sort of unpacking it, um, in recent times would have been Donald Gray Barnhouse who was a great preacher in the 20th century, Presbyterian, many people know him. But he was not the first to come up with this. James Orr and many others before him had, had unpacked this whole thing. You have to understand, for Jews, this whole business of genealogies... Now, I know I'm talking to Charlestonians, so it's a little different for Charlestonians. They're very interested in genealogies. But you have to understand that for you know, Gentiles, they were, they were not particularly concerned about that sort of... But Jews were very concerned about this sort of thing. You know, that's one of the reasons why you go back in the Old Testament and you go into the, the book of Kings, you even go back to the book of Numbers and so forth, and you see so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you go back into the book of Genesis and you have that, all that long list of the patriarchs and all, and they just seem like a list of names to us, but it was not a list of names to them. It was very significant. So much of what I'm saying here, you could have explained to a Jew, and a Jew in the first century would have said, yes, I've got that. I get it. Where they would have gotten hung up, I think, back to Charlene's point, I think what they would have gotten hung up on is this whole idea of a virgin birth. Oh yeah, Jesus is what you're saying. He is the undisputed claimant if Mary was really a virgin and the child she bore was a child of the Holy Spirit. But let's be honest, folks. If your daughter, your granddaughter comes home and she says, I'm pregnant, and you say, what's your first question? <laughs> Who is he? <laughs> Honey, get my gun. That's, that's what you're going to say. That's, that's the first thing you're going to say. And she says, oh, it's of the Holy Ghost. I want to see a show of hands of how many of you are going to believe that. <laughs> Nobody's going to believe it. That's one of the things that's so compelling about the Christmas story. That's what's so compelling about Joseph. When Mary tells Joseph, what is his desire? His desire is not to say, oh, that's wonderful, honey. I, I hope he has your eyes. He's not going to say that. What does he say? The scripture says he desires to divorce her quietly. Being a just man, he didn't want to expose her to ridicule. And by the way, this was punishable by death, by stoning. She had broken the marriage contract. So being a just man, he doesn't want to put her to death. He desires to divorce her quietly. It takes divine intervention before he's willing to accept the message. 
So I think that most Jews would have been able to accept the argument that I've just laid out for you and said, yeah, if a virgin birth took place, you're right. He has to be the Savior. He can be the only Savior. But virgin birth? Who believes that sort of thing? Which is why Paul takes us to the resurrection. Because if the resurrection is true, see, the resurrection is the seal upon Good Friday. This is why I say Good Friday and Easter are two sides of the same coin. You can't say that Easter is more important than Good Friday. And you can't say that Good Friday is more important than Easter. They are two sides of the same coin. Jesus pays the price for our sin on the cross. What were the Lord's last words when he's dying on the cross? It's one word, actually. Where's my Greek scholar back there? What is it? That is exactly right. Say it louder for everybody. Okay, and it means finished, accomplished. It's translated, it is finished, but it's one word in Greek. Now, when Jesus said, it is finished, what did he mean? It meant that everything that he had come to earth to do was now accomplished, finished. Nothing more needed to be accomplished. That is an extraordinary claim. In many respects, it's the greatest claim that Jesus made during his earthly ministry. It is finished. It's all accomplished. It's all done. Nothing else needs to be added to it. It's an extraordinary claim if it's true. But how do you know it's true? How do you know that Jesus actually paid the price for the sin, that nothing else needs to be done? The only way you can know that is if he is raised again on the third day, and that's what Easter is. It is the seal upon Good Friday. Now, if Jesus really is then the Son of God, which he's declared to be by his resurrection, then everything that he claimed is true. And everything in the scriptures that is declared about him is true. And that's what Paul is getting at. So, what's the significance of Bethlehem? The significance of Bethlehem is that it is the first step on the road that leads to Calvary and the empty tomb. That's the significance of Bethlehem. The manger is the first step on the road that's going to take us to Calvary and to the empty tomb. If Jesus had come into this world, been born of a virgin, but never died for your sins and mine, you and I would be no better off than if he'd never come in the first place. We'd be able to say at one point, oh yes, God walked among us, but it wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. You would still be under the judgment of God. He came to be born for the express purpose of dying. Do you ever notice in the creed we say, born of the Virgin Mary, and then what? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. In the Apostles' Creed, it goes immediately from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate, because really that's what it's all about. And that's the gospel of God that Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 1. And who but God could think of that? It's really quite extraordinary, isn't it? Now you can see why it's going to take us all these years to get through Romans, because we've only gotten this far. But there's a whole lot in there. This is dense. This is important stuff. 
If you grasp the epistle to the Romans, my friends, you've grasped the heart of Christianity. So if you never go to any other Bible study, but you get this one, you're going to get the gospel. And if we don't finish it and the Lord returns, he's going to explain all of that to you in such a way that it's going to be crystal clear. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this great epistle to the Romans. It is deep, but again, why should we think that this subject should be anything less? We are talking theology here, the science of God. You are the creator of the whole universe, the cosmos, all the galaxies, the, the universe, the planets, the stars, the quarks, the quasars, every man, every woman, every living creature. How can our finite minds grasp the infinite? There are so many questions we have, so many things that we do not understand. But you have given us enough. Expand our minds, expand our hearts, that we might take in what we need to learn. And like Mary, ponder these things in our hearts, that they might bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, descended from David, our Savior and the Savior of the world. Amen. Thank you.